building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On the Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. Just before we get into today's episode, we'd like to invite you to subscribe to our weekly devotional group. Just text the two words, Promise Keepers, to 31996. Every week you'll receive a challenging devotional that will inspire you to put your faith into action in the real world. Again, text Promise Keepers to 31996. And now, here's today's show. greatest show we'll ever get to do with my good friend and living legend Heather. And uh, I cannot wait to get into the show because there's so many amazing stories you're going to tell. I think it's going to apply it to what's going on with our culture today. Well, Pat Boone, you are, uh, it's been an honor to become a friend of yours. And well, me too, of yours. I, I don't have your book in front of me, but it's a fantastic book. Oh, thank you. But I, I don't know how many people who are younger realize what a living legend you are. And I thought the coolest way to do this is you have all these pictures out here. We're in your office right mm-hmm. now in West Hollywood. Yeah. And you have these pictures on the wall. And, and you've told me some of the stories, and they're, they're so cool. <laughs> and so the first one I have to ask you about is okay. when Elvis Presley opened for you. That's right. He was my opening act. Uh, and of course, he was not known across the country. He was known only in the Southeast. He was thought of at that moment as a rockabilly singer from Memphis. He was appearing on the uh, Louisiana Hayride, a country music show like the Grand Ole Opry out of Shreveport, Louisiana. And he would sing country songs with kind of a rock beat that was just rock and roll what we call rock and roll was just coming on now. It was really rhythm and blues, mm. or as it was called then, race music. Mm. It was black music, black performers singing in the rhythm and blues way. They had their own stations. They had their own uh, uh, charts and in in magazines, and they had their own artists. And the, the pop world, including the DJs and radio, knew nothing of R&B music. It just wasn't played. It was it was the day of how much is that doggy in the window and <laughs> and Tennessee waltz and uh, shows from broad um, songs from Broadway and Tin Pan Alley and just uh, pop songs. But grad at that point, while Elvis had just graduated from high school, was driving a truck uh, to make a few bucks and and making a record over at the Sun Records there in Memphis. Uh, and 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 picking up on rhythm and blues songs, which he liked, um, and then trying to do pop songs like they were rhythm and blues songs. And it was not quite working, but it was intriguing. And so he made the one record for for Sun out of Memphis, and uh, and it was becoming popular in the in the Southeast. So Colonel Tom Parker became his manager and made a deal with RCA Victor, the big label to buy his contract from Sam Phillips at uh, Sun Records. But but Elvis hadn't even recorded yet for RCA, and he only had this one record. But I had, in March of 55, made my first recording, which was a cover of a rock and roll song called Two Hearts, Two Kisses, a group song by the... Um, 
charms on the do-tone label. One heart's not enough, baby. One kiss will make you feel crazy. One kiss will make you feel so nice. Two kisses take you to paradise. Two hearts, two kisses make one love with a strong beat. Recorded that song, and it, it went right in the top 10, sold a million records. The next record was Ain't That a Shame, Pat's Domino, You Made Me Cry When You Said Goodbye. Ain't That a Shame, and that, that went to number one, sold a million. His record in the R&B chart had sold about 150,000, number one, and that was big in R&B. Then I recorded that song for a pop audience, called it Rock and Roll, and it sold a million and a half, 10 times what his record had sold, and he was thrilled. And, and so at that point, my third record was at my front door, crazy little mama come knock, knock, knocking, knocking at my front door, door, door. Kind of a, uh, a questionable lyric, <laughs> but, but who cared? The teenagers didn't care what the lyrics were, and I would change lyrics if they were really risque. This is what was happening in 1955, and I had to transfer from North Texas State uh, where I was in college and expecting surely my first baby, a second child actually by then. And um, and so I transferred to New York and Columbia University and Bill Randall, the nation's na number one DJ in Cleveland. He was the biggest DJ and ever, all the other DJs took his lead because when I recorded uh, some of these songs, uh, other artists like Frank Sinatra, Doris Day, and the pop artists were also recording those songs, but they were trying to make them sound like pop songs, which wasn't rock and roll. So Bill Randall declared that my records of those R&B covers were the records of those songs. So here I was unknown at that point, and I was the stations were playing my versions of those songs instead of Frank Sinatra, Doris Day, and the others. And so Bill asked me to come from New York, where I had just settled in, and to go to Columbia, to Cleveland in, in uh, October of 1955, and host, uh, be a, the lead singer or the, the star of a sock hop in a high school in Cleveland. And he was going to be playing the records. And, and a sock hop, you know, the artist would come in and lip sync his records. So I would be lip syncing my three current R&B hits that were all becoming million sellers. But he, when he picked me up at the airport uh, to, to bring me over to the high school, he said, we got a kid from uh, coming up from Louisiana going to be on the program ahead of you. And I said, really, who? He said, well, you don't know of him. Uh, hardly anybody does. His name is Elvis Presley. <laughs> I said, it's the last time that was ever said. Yeah. <laughs> I said, well, I, I saw one of his records on a jukebox in Dallas. I said, Bill, he's a hillbilly. He's a country artist. I mean, you think that's <laughs> going to go over here tonight? Aren't we doing rock and roll? Well, RCA has picked him up and uh, and they think they've got something, although he hasn't recorded yet for them. But we just want, he'll he'll lip sync his record and, we'll, and we'll, let's see how the kids react. And I just want to see what he's like myself. So I was backstage uh, at the high school and they were dancing to three, three almost almost 3,000 kids were dancing and um, to the music. And, and in walks Elvis and three or four of his buddies. I think Red West, Charlie Hodge. The, no, no, it wouldn't have been Charlie at that time. His, his, his buddies that were playing music with him. 
at Scotty Moore. And, uh, and he was very bashful and shy. And I, me, I'm not shy. <laughs> so no, you're not. I just reached out. I said, hi, Elvis, I'm Pat Boone. He said, nice to meet you. <laughs> and, he, and he didn't shake my hand. He just let me shake his. No, I mean, nobody had instructed him yet. Kind of the wet fish On the social feel. grace yeah. of squeezing right. the hand. He let me shake his hand. And I said, uh, well, Bill Randall thinks there may be some big things ahead for you. I don't know about that, but I hope so. And uh, and he just leaned back against the wall. His buddies closed in between us, and I saw he didn't. He was not comfortable just making small talk. He he didn't know me, and and he he just he'd been polite, but now he was bashful. I thought, well, he may really go over like a lead balloon when they introduce him. He right, he looks right. like he's nervous and scared. So <clears throat> the moment came, and Bill Randall told all these assembled kids. Said, I have a new kid from come up from Louisiana. He's going to be recording for RCA Victor. You haven't heard of him, but 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 we want you to give a nice welcome to young Elvis Presley. So Elvis came out with his guitar and he was like strumming like he was well, he was playing, but you couldn't hear it, and he's lip syncing his record. But it was Blue Moon of Kentucky, a Bill Monroe bluegrass song blue moon of kentucky keep on shining only he sang a little different than that but it was still bluegrass and the kids were they liked the way he looked but but they weren't caring for that music but they gave him a big hand because he was kind of twitchy and he was good looking and uh, he immediately instantly looked like the guy that the kids were not supposed to hang out with the girls anyway because he looked like the kind of rebel guy with the might have his cigarettes rolled up in his sleeve and and sort of laughing at the guys that were taking school seriously and and athletics they they were he was just coasting through you know that guy who the girls would be fascinated by but weren't supposed to hang out with that's what he looked like on the stage and so of course they gave him a big hand when he finished his thank you very much uh, uh, I'm glad you like it. He said, I, I, I want to do the other side of that record for you. Hope you like it. And he started singing, that's all right, mama. That's all right with me. Any, any way you please. And it was rhythm and blues. And they loved that. And, and I thought, oh, boy, I may be in trouble. He liked, they like him. And I like that, too. Well, he finished that. And that's all he had. He took, took, his, took a bow. And they, they wanted more. But he didn't have anything else to offer. So now I had to follow him, and I did, because of my three hits currently at that moment, Two Hearts, Two Kisses, Ain't That a Shame, and at my front door, all million sellers, uh, I got the screams because I'm, suddenly I'm a teen idol. I'm married, I'm expecting a second child, but they don't know that. <laughs> all they know is <laughs> the records are big hits, and I'm 21. So was Elvis. I was 11 months older than Elvis. So he vanished, and when I finished and I got all the screams that night in the sock hop, I came off and he was gone. And we didn't talk again for a year and a half when we were now both renting homes in Bel Air, California. He's doing movies at 20th Century Fox. I'm doing mine there. We're, we're, we're in, two miles up the road from where we're sitting. Yeah. And so I and then I went to his house uh, for dinner at his house because our, our houses, rental houses, we're close and sitting around while this couple from Memphis are fixing some chicken fried steak and okra and black eyed peas and, you know, the kind of food that we both liked. 
with his buddies out there playing pool on the pool table. And uh, I said, Elvis, you know, that that night we first met in, in uh, Memphis, I mean, in Cleveland, you seem so shy, kind of nervous. He said, well, I don't know how to talk to you, man. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you were a star. A star? I'd only been recording since March. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you were on the charts. You had hit records, and I, I didn't know how to talk to you. So it, that, it just shows he was really a shy, polite, nice young man from Memphis. And all of this was happening to him in a rush because his first record was Heartbreak Hotel, and that was an instant hit. And uh, for the next four years, the last half of the 50s, from 50, 55 through 59, we matched each other hit for hit. I had 41 chart records in the last half of the 50s. He had 40. I had one more only because I had an 11-month head start. You outdid Elvis <laughs> on Presley. Him. I had one more hit in the 50s than he did. He, he may have sold more volume because he was selling huge numbers, but so was I. I had 6 million sellers. In the course, in between March of 55 and February of 56, when Heartbreak Hotel came out, I had six million selling singles, but four of those were on two records because they'd play the A side, it would sell a million. Then they'd turn it over and it would sell a million. And that happened to me several times. And it happened to Elvis hmm. several times too, where so I had six million selling singles by the time he hit with Heartbreak Hotel. So we just matched each other hit for hit during the, the 50s and then into the 60s. Uh, so, yeah, meeting him and having him as my opening act yeah, is is, is something I, I take pleasure in and pride in. But, of course, I had the good sense never to follow him again. <laughs> Nobody with any brains was ever going to follow Elvis in any show. Two or three did, Milton Berle and uh, I think Liberace. Both wow. booked him as their support act in Las Vegas, and and they realized it was a big mistake because the audiences that came, yeah, they'd like to hear Liberace, they'd like to hear Jack Benny or whoever, uh, but they were wait, they were there really to hear Elvis, and they were screaming for him while they, oh, <laughs> the headliners were trying to get their job done. So they, well, no, he, no, Elvis had already appeared. What am I saying? He had appeared before them. So half the crowd's walking out. Yeah, they're wa not walking out, but the applause was nowhere near the same for the headliner as it had been for their opening act. So I got away with it, but only because the audience didn't know who he was at that time. Now, he's not the only legend that, I mean, you, you've, and you were a legend yourself, but uh, we should, we're, for those of you who are just listening to the audio, we're showing some of these pictures that are on your wall mm -hmm. while we're talking about it. Yeah. But there's one story you don't have a picture on your wall, but you got to tell about when Ronald Reagan asked you to dinner. Yeah, I, I was, I knew Ronald Reagan when he and Nancy and their kids, we were friends before he was governor, and of California, he had been on. Uh, he was hosting. He'd done some movies, but he was not making movies anymore. And people thought his career was over. But he was hosting a television show called uh, Death Valley Days. It was, Death I think, Days. Death Valley Days. Yeah. But, and he was host of the show. It was something coming after his movie career. So this was like the early 60s? It was the uh, late 50s. Late 50s. And, uh, and so I had brought my family to California from New Jersey after I graduated in 58 from Columbia. And and I met this uh, 
this actor named Ronald Reagan and Nancy, his wife, and their kids, Ron Jr. and Pat, Patty, were the same age as our kids, my daughters. But Nancy and Ron had had their kids at the very end of their childbearing capability. And Shirley and I had really rushed it because we had four daughters when I graduated from college at 23. I mean, I should have been jailed or neutered, one of the two. <laughs> but but here with four daughters and in school with Ronald Reagan's kids. He was then touring the country, making what was called the speech. He had some three by five cards and he was speaking on behalf of GE and uh, and saying things like government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. <laughs> and 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 scoring big with all these audiences. And so the there was a there was a groundswell growing for him to run for governor, but he hadn't done it yet. And uh, and and I driving home from after school functions, after talking with him in front of this big roaring fire after our kids were involved in some kind of activity, I would say to my wife Shirley, you know that guy Ron Reagan. I love the way he thinks, how he talks, and and he ought to run for office. He could be a great representative. I bet you he could be elected. <laughs> we weren't thinking about president. We weren't even thinking about governor yet. But then when he did announce to run for governor against a very popular Democrat named Pat Brown, nobody thought he had a chance. And none of his entertainer friends really thought he had a chance either. There were only three entertainers of any note at all who lined up to support him when he first announced for governor. There was a Piper Laurie, a young actress. There was Victor Jory, uh, an aged character actor. Oh, and then an actor named Wendell Corey. So there was Corey, Laurie, Jory, and Boone. It sounds like a bad law firm. <laughs> and, and we were the only ones who were supporting our friend Ronald Reagan. But, of course, he won the governorship, and then he became very popular. And then all of a sudden, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, they were all... Well, we were always for our buddy Ron. No, they weren't. So, so Reagan, I was his supporter all the way through his his runs for the presidency, and then when he became president, at time from time after time, our phone would ring in my office, and the secretary would come run. It's the White House calling you, and uh, it's the president, and and I'd pick up the phone. Hello, Pat. It's Ron. Oh, hello, Mr. Brett. No, it's just Ron. And we would talk as friends. So now he's, he's uh, I think, toward the end of his first term. He's in Grand Rapids. He's going to support uh, a re-election campaign for a guy, Guy Vanderjack, who's running for the, for the House of Representatives from Grand Rapids, Michigan. I happened to come in to do a concert that very night. I check in the hotel. And some Secret Service guys are there, and they said the president's upstairs in the presidential suite. Wants to know if you'd like to have an early dinner with him before you go to your concert. I said, "Well, yeah." <laughs> and so, of course, I put on my tie and I went up to the top floor. And the Secret Service met me out in front of the presidential suite. I expected there to be a group of local politicians and business people meeting before the, his event with uh, the president. We walked into the main room and there's nobody there. And I, of course, was befuddled in the Secret Service said, no, it's in the dining room. It's around the corner. I walk around the corner and there's a big, big, long dining table. Ronald Reagan, president, and Charlton Heston sitting up there and a chair for me. 
So I sat down, had dinner with Moses <laughs> and uh, the president. And, and of course, I was eager to, they, we didn't have a lot of time, but we did eat and they was talking animatedly. And, and I wanted to ask questions about what was going on politically, but he didn't want to talk about politics. He and Heston wanted to tell their stories about when they were making movies together and all the funny things that happened. And, and, uh, and so I thoroughly enjoyed that and told him a couple of funny things that had happened to me in my filmmaking, which was, of course, minuscule compared to, to theirs. But that was it. I have a picture. And of that night, thank God, they did have a photographer take a picture of the three of us. Just me having dinner with the president and Ben-Hur and Moses <laughs> and three guys. And that, of course, was a highlight in my life. That is a cool story. All right. You got a, a switching it up a little bit. You got a yeah. picture of yourself standing against a pool with Ozzy Osbourne. Talk about <laughs> not Elvis Presley. <laughs> now, that that is a juxtaposition and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, living in the same house in Beverly Hills for 65 years. Shirley and I moved out from, uh, as I say, from we were, had a home in New Jersey and we were looking, we had four daughters. I had to find a place that had bathrooms for, and bedrooms for four daughters. And we found a fabulous location right next to the Beverly Hills Hotel. And it was a miracle. I mean, that we got that 1.2 acres flat land at, the, at, at that corner right by the hotel. That's Beverly. a beautiful part of Beverly Hills. It right is. There. And uh, if I told you what we paid for this two-story, wonderful <laughs> California house and the 1.2 acres, you wouldn't believe it. But it was a miracle. I paid 159000 Well, that was a lot of money. Well, back, for me, it was at the time. Then, yeah. We sold our house in New Jersey, a three-story brick home in Teaneck, New Jersey, for 75000 and this guy wanted three times that uh, for this place in Beverly Hills. Well, we uh, we made an offer, and um, of 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 the hundred fifty nine, and to our amazement, he took it. We found out later he had sold a toy company that he owned, and he wanted to move to New York, and his wife was balking because they'd raised their three boys for ten years in that house. And she was balking about leaving, and he wanted to sell the house and get out of there. So the extra money that he might have gotten if we paid the 200000 he wanted, and we got it for 159000 So we lived there all those years. And uh, one day, and what was it in the, oh, goodness, about 12 years ago, 15 years ago, something like that, a guy named Ozzy Osbourne, moved in next door to us. <laughs> he bought the house. It had been owned by the guest jeans fellow, Marciano. And he sold it, and all of a sudden... I used to be a bodyguard for him. I used to sit out in front of that house. Oh, really? Yeah, in a suit and tie with my 9 millimeter to because he yeah, thought somebody was trying to kill him. He was... A, he was a, well, yeah, Marciano. <laughs> yeah. Guest jeans. No kidding. Yeah, so you knew that 80s. place well. Yeah. You were you were protecting him and me at the same <laughs> I didn't time. I lived there. I'd have come over and said hi. Listen, I would have been thrilled that the later Secret Service showed up when uh, Ozzy was gone and some Saudi Arabians moved in, and the FBI and I mean the FBI but Secret Service showed up wanting to know if I knew those people, which I didn't, because in Beverly Hills you can live next over, over the hedge from people and, and never know who they are. 
The only reason I met Marcy it's Adams was... the scorn wife. of being wealthy. You know, the poor, yeah. the middle class, they know their neighbors, but the wealthy, they put up big walls and and uh, they live lonely lives. It's, it's a weird thing. It, it, well, now, Ozzy had, had just moved in. I hadn't met him yet, but I had recorded an album of heavy metal classics. I remember that. And it, and it got... You did the Metallica song. I did the Metallica song, Enter Sandman, yeah. and Smoke on the Water, Deep Purple, and... Uh, Guns N' Roses, Paradise City. But you didn't and all do any Ozzy songs. I did. You did? I did, yeah. I did uh, Crazy Train. Oh, you did? Really? I did Crazy Train. <laughs> and, uh, and, he, and he loved it. He and, and Sharon loved my recording. Now, I didn't know this yet. They had just moved in. And I went out. There's a, we now had a gate. I didn't have a gate at our house until Debbie had a big hit record, You Light Up My Life, and all of a sudden, guys were coming around wanting to see Debbie Boone. They hadn't bothered us very much, although they'd come in sometimes, but we could handle that. But after Debbie, we put up a gate. So now I go out at the gate to get the mail, and here comes this guy shuffling down the sidewalk, and there's an Escalade parked in front, and it's Ozzy. And he, he's, he's shuffling along because he walks in sort of a shuffle. He, Hello, Pat. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm Pat Boone, Ozzy. Oh, hi, hi, nice to meet you. He said, uh, he said, I got to go to an AA meeting, but he said, uh, you know, we'll get together and have tea sometime, okay? <laughs> and so we did. Uh, but because he was my next door neighbor. And the only, and we got to be friends, he and Sharon and the kids, Jack and, um, his, and, the, and his sister. And um, and the only incident happened. There was music, loud music and stuff coming, and dogs barking. They had a lot of dogs. One morning, I walked out the uh, the back door, and and there was just a huge high hedge between our houses. And they're on the on the driveway in front of the garage, and up against the the doorway of the kitchen was fluorescent paint just scattered all over, and it was clear from the the pattern that had been thrown over the hedge from some party, some kids that were having, uh, and and it splattered paint all over our driveway. Well, I had a hunch it was maybe water soluble, so I got a hose and sprayed it, and gee, I got rid of it, and I never even mentioned it. And um, so Ozzy, Rolling Stone was going to do a big cover piece on him, and they knew I was his next door neighbor, so they said, "Would you come over?" and take pictures with Ozzy in his backyard, which is just across the hedge from our place. I said, sure, because we were now buddies. We were friends. And he watched his, she, Sharon, and the kids watched their language, but he didn't because he didn't know any other way to talk but with F words and so on. And yet he wore a cross and he had religious icons in his house, but also demonic ones too. But that's just him. That's the way it's raised in Manchester. I think it was in England. So... I went over to take pictures with Ozzy, and uh, he 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 had a big pool screener like he was, he's, you know, cleaning the pool. And I'm there. I've got a big flower clippers like he's going to trim the roses. Like he he didn't do either of those things, <laughs> but for the Rolling Stone pictures, we took the pictures and we were just next door neighbors. And then to cap it, when he when they started doing the TV show the Osbournes, which became the talk of TV for a number of months, you know, and it was all the cameras in there. It started all of those cameras in the house shows uh, mm -hmm. because they let the cameras come in and just show them all the time the way they really were. 
And in one of the shows, um, Sharon was doing some dishes at the sink and Ozzy was behind her. She said, don't you miss, don't you miss that nice Pat Boone? Oh, he was the best neighbor we ever had. <laughs> and, and people would ask me about it. And I, the DJs and I'd say, well, yeah, we got along great because I was the only neighbor they ever had who never called the police because <laughs> <laughs> we got along fine. And uh, so Ozzy, I took those pictures and uh, there I was, uh, his neighbor. And of course, then when they did his show and you, I tuned in to see what it was all about, I heard me, my version of his song, Crazy, hey, that's how it goes. Millions of people—I forget where it goes from. Where, don't know where it goes. I don't—that's not the word. <laughs> but I'm singing his song, and they—he and Sharon like my version of his song, so they made it his theme song for his TV show. And then when he put out a record of uh, an album of songs, records by other people that he liked. And he did a couple of songs and then records by Eric Clapton and all kinds of people. But the first record on his album was my version of his song, Crazy Train. So, I mean, God has led me <laughs> down an incredible path. Very unexpected moments, meeting with all kinds of people. I mean, I could talk to you for a long time about just the people that I've had access to interaction with been able to share my faith with and in some cases with very good results elvis for one uh going back to elvis for a minute when he was flying so high and appearing in the international hotel i went to his opening he hadn't been doing any live performances for several years he was just doing movies because colonel tom parker would get at least a million dollars of film for elvis and uh and oh, of course, that he, he would take a half. That. He would take half the money, which was okay with Elvis because he was making plenty of money. He didn't care. The colonel was making all the arrangements. He didn't care for some of the movies he made. They were not great stories, but he would go ahead and make the movies because that's what his manager wanted him to do. And anyway, he comes back to live performing. And I went to his opening at the International Hotel in Las Vegas. And it was a smash, of course. And then I went, but after the first show, upstairs to the penthouse where he was. He wasn't just in the dressing room. He was up in, the, of course, the penthouse. And we're talking. And I tell, told him how great I thought he'd done. And he had. He says, can I talk to you a minute? We go back in this big walk-in closet. He said, I wish I could go to church like you do. I said, well, you can. Why not? He said, because I would be a distraction. He says, I go in and the kids want autographs from me and it would take away from the preacher. And I said, don't you think that happens to me when I go to church? <laughs> yeah. You know what I do? I say, kids, I'll sign your bulletins after the church service. I'm just here for the same reason you are. And go sit down and worship. Let them see that you're there for the same reason they are. And then sign their bulletins. They'll take them to school. Where'd you get that? He was at your church. Can I come? Mm. I said, let it be an evangelical outreach, you know. Oh, I don't think I could do that. He said, he said, because, you know, these kids, they scream and they yell. And I said, not if you're in a church. But he says, do you know Oral Roberts? I said, I do. He said, I'd like to talk to him sometime. I said, let me give you a clue. Your name is Elvis Presley. <laughs> Get on the phone, call Tulsa, Oklahoma, Oral Roberts University. Somebody's going to answer the phone and say, this is Elvis Presley. I'd like to talk to Oral Roberts. 
in 30 seconds, you'll be on the phone with Oral Roberts. No. He, he, no, I can't do that. He he was shy. He was still really socially After shy. All those years, you know, he, socially he never graduated from. He got graduated from high school. That was as far as he got. Socially, he was uncomfortable. Johnny Carson was like that. He, uh, he on stage, on camera, anything went. He, he was very comfortable, but socially, making small talk with people he didn't know was not comfortable for Johnny Carson. It certainly wasn't comfortable for Elvis. So I called Earl Roberts and he flew out from Tulsa and met with Elvis, as did Rex Humbard and other ministers, because they all said he's hungry. He's spiritually hungry. He grew up in church like you did, Pat, you know, with his family. And he misses all that. And after his concerts at three in the morning, he'll be singing with the gospel quartet that accompanied him in his shows and he'll sing gospel songs until dawn hmm. and keep them up all night singing all the gospel songs. He got only three Grammy Grammys because he and I preceded Grammys. When we were having our main heydays in recording, there were no Grammys and there were no big Grammy um, events publicized and televised. So I never got a Grammy. And he only got three Grammys for his gospel recordings posthumously because all of his huge hit records and all of mine were before they were giving Grammy awards and before there were all those Grammy events. Well, as we, as we come out of this break here, I want to talk about the Grammys that were on a little bit ago and where you think America's going, especially with your perspective. Crazy. Hey, but that's how it goes. Millions of people. Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone. For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities, like Promise Keepers, by crafting customized, innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan, utilizing business interests, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org. And now, back to today's show. Us Keepers is back, and we're relaunching the stadium events that brought millions of men to Christ. Join us this July at AT&T Stadium in Dallas, Texas, for a men's conference like no other. Strengthen your soul with unforgettable worship led by top Christian artists. Form friendships with brothers in Christ that last a lifetime, and discover new tools and strategies that will empower you to follow Jesus more faithfully. Be sure to get your tickets before they sell out or find a simulcast location near you. Visit www.promisekeepersevent.com for the latest information. We'll see you this summer. Say your prayers, little one. Don't forget my son to include everyone. I tuck you in warm with 
So we're talking to living legend Pat Boone. Uh, it's such a, it's such an honor to be your friend, let alone to have you on. The well, show. I am your friend, and the legend part, you know, I generally that applies to somebody. If it's living legend, they're not going to be living long. <laughs> and, and I'm planning to be around a little while longer. My dad lived to be 94, and Mama 91, and they weren't even trying. Well, you're playing tennis all the yeah, time. I, I, I mean, yeah. you're in good shape. I am in good shape. I play singles tennis. I play basketball in the senior games. Well, I'm not going to do it anymore, but I did play in the 70 to 75 bracket, 75 to 80 bracket, and the 80 to 85 bracket, three-on-three basketball. And you'd be amazed how many guys my age still can play some decent basketball. Of course, we're not going to be in the NBA or even the ABA, which I started, by the way, the American Basketball. So I was part of the founding of the ABA. And then I owned the Oakland Oaks, Dr. J, and uh, and so many of the others that were – Oh, gosh, I'm forgetting two or three others. The Iceman, George Gervin, George yeah. all became great players in the NBA. And Rick Barry uh, was was on our team. We won the championship in 1969. And which, which team was that? Oakland Oaks. The Oakland and Oaks. then, of course, the Oaks were bought. Thank God it got me out of it and saved my hide. But it went to uh, the, the became the Washington Caps and then the Virginia Squires. And then Rick Barry went back to, to San Francisco and finally wound up, I think, in San Antonio. But, but I was the owner, outright owner of the uh, Oakland Oaks, and we won the championship. And I have a ring I always wanted to show Elizabeth Taylor that cost me a lot more money than any ring Richard Burton gave her. Yeah, right. <laughs> Mine was just brass and glass, but, but boy, was it costly. Brass and glass. But it, uh, it got me out of uh, the, the miracles save my financial hide when a um, when a uh, businessman from uh, Washington DC flew to, Wa- to the Bank of America in San Francisco I want to buy the Oakland Oaks how much I owed so much money to the bank and he quoted a multi-million dollar price which the guy said okay I'll buy it and I also want a line of credit millions more we we're trying to put together a sports complex with uh, soccer, football, and uh, hockey, as well as basketball. And so the banker, the shock banker, was thrilled to give them the line of credit because it took the Oakland Oaks away because he knew I was not going to be able to pay the millions that that I owed them already. And it was just an absolute miracle because I have yet to meet the man named George Foreman who flew from Washington to the bank. I haven't even met the banker who lent me all that money. Uh, they were doing it on the strength of my reputation and and uh, a statement, a, a financial statement. <clears throat> but I was going to get wiped out. But a miracle happened, and I was set free. And and it's just because I trust the Lord. So speaking of being set free, let's talk about what's happening in culture now. So you, I mean, you you went from President Truman, who you met, yeah, to President Trump. You talk yeah. about a difference in demeanor and how we handle oh, ourselves. Oh, oh, yeah. And you know, the Grammys that, that that appeared, I think, to me, I mean, I knew our country was in bad shape. But when I saw that um, that performance of uh, WAP, I mean, what, I, I never I never dreamt America could be so depraved, Sick. so perverse. What do Corrupt. you how does someone I mean, you've been at the top of entertainment, movies, singing yeah. for 
for so long. What, what must you think when you see that? Well, it's, it's, it's heart, it makes me heart sick. It's unbelievable. But it was happening at halftime in the Super Bowl. Things like this were happening with, uh, with respected artists, uh, women like uh, Jennifer Lopez and all, you know, acting like bump and grind artists in, a, in some men's club. Uh, and, and on purpose, I mean, doing it, their mothers, their, their wives, or maybe not wives yet in some cases, but, but mothers. And they do these things. And, and the general public goes for it. At least they put up with it. And the producers, even the NBA uh, and the NFL, they will put up with all of these things because they're trying to appeal to a young audience. And they think to appeal to a young audience, they've got to appeal to the, to the, to the gutter because that's what so much of the music is. And yeah, this thing that was, that was Grammys, it was, it was the Grimies. That was, should it be called the Grimies, not the Grammys. You know what really breaks my heart is that this is done in the name of feminism, and yet it's yeah. complete exploitation of women. It, it devalues women, and it makes me sick how Satan's lies have permeated even the church yeah. is starting to tolerate some and of this in stuff. racial sensitivity. Yes, right. While they're portraying black people in the worst possible ways, as if this is the culture that black people want to subscribe to. Mm. I mean, people are trying to rise out of the gutter. They're trying to rise out of poverty. They're trying to rise out. I mean, I, I go back several more Grammy shows where the the producer had, and the only way to describe it is this way, they had a police car burning. They had uh, skinny black women that are referred to as skanks with skimpy outfits dancing around the fire at while some crazy music was, was being played and you couldn't understand the words. And if you did, you didn't want to know what the words were. And these are on the award shows in fact, one of the songs of the year was a show from a, I think it was from a, um, well, from a black movie, but it's hard out here for a pimp, was the song of the year. Like it was the best Hollywood could come up with in music. It's hard out here for a pimp. And, 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 and we've, we've let the culture be so dumbed down and corrupted and now giving awards. And unfortunately, so many of the rappers, some of whom actually are Christian people, but they come out and they're doing stuff that's filthy, filled with invectives and filthy words. And they get an award and they say, I want to thank my Lord and Savior for this. And they're wearing a cross. And I can almost hear Jesus say, look, I had nothing to do with that. Don't thank me for that. I had nothing whatsoever. I mean, it is so such a perverse corrupt thing and it's just being accepted as culture so pat what, what do we do about it as a culture what do christians do about it there's that sort of um complete gospel message but then there's at what point do we get involved in culture and start to say enough is enough well first of all we we should turn off the tv if we have young people at home and, and say we're not watching that it's filth you can't watch it uh we can do things that, that most people don't think are effective, but they are. They can write sponsors. Mm. I've done that. Steve Allen, even, who was very liberal, 
I was part of the Parents Television Council for years. And we would write letters to the sponsors who were sponsoring filthy shows regularly. Nip Tuck, one show uh, was, I mean, I won't even go into the way they, the filthy things that they were showing, and it was a popular show, gets high ratings. Sponsored by one of the sponsors of the U.S. Army. Oh, and another one, Toyota. And I wrote myself to the, to the, to the ones who were, paying for the ads for the U.S. Army and for Toyota, the chairman of Toyota, Toyota Motors, saying, do you, or do you watch this show that you're sponsoring? Do you want people, when they think of Toyota, to think of these filthy things that are being shown on TV that you're sponsoring? Do you want people, when they, think of the, when they see these filthy things, to think of your car, Toyota? Do you want the U.S. Army to be associated with this filth just because it's getting ratings? And, you know, in both cases, I wrote them. Uh, Steve Allen, he felt strongly. He did a whole newspaper campaign, TVs dragging America into the sewer. And this was very liberal socially, Steve Allen. I mean, he took a lot of heat for it, but he saw how, how bad it was for America and for young people. And it was even a disgrace to television itself. So, but, but what I'm saying is, Writing letters to the sponsors. And who do you, how do you programs. find out who to write to, like at the Google company? It. Just Google. You just Google it. And you write to the president or to the head of advertising, or who do you write both, to? Both. You, you just go, you just go, so who is the president, the chairman of this company that is authorizing their money to be spent for programs like this? And uh, the one where uh, uh, one, Jackson, uh, what's her name, the Jackson girl, Bared her breast and, oh, and, the Super Bowl. and uh, Justin was it somebody Timberlake, uh, Timberlake you know, accidentally uh, on television, um, the sponsor for that show withdrew sponsorship from the show afterwards because of all the mail he got. They got the, the, you know they want to sell their products. That's why they're sponsoring these programs. But if the people that they want to buy their products in mass. Let them know, I, I'll not buy your product anymore. I mean, you're bringing this stuff in front of my kids. So it's time for Christians to start standing up. Def we've got to be heard. Being a little uncomfortable, writing some letters, and, yeah. and start to be heard. About sure, it takes filth. a little time. It takes a little search. You have to ask somebody, how do I, how do I find out who's responsible for this? And how do I let them know that I, I object? We've got to be more vocal. We've got to resist. We, we are supposed to be... I'm, writing a song about we being earthen vessels and we are filled with with his spirit and living by his word we're earthen vessels and we're supposed to be light he says you're the light of the world we've got to be light we've got to act like we have something to confront the darkness with and we do it's jesus it's the word it's our own morals we've got to act like we're not going to accept this anymore and we have the power, literally. <laughs> we God will work with us, and He does will give us the power. We I know because I've done it, and with other entertainers who feel like I do, we have been able to get certain programs taken off the air because the sponsors quit them, and they're not on there anymore. But you can still go back and archive them if you want to see their filth. It's still around, but the networks, the social media. We have to let our voices be heard, and we've got to speak out. And um, 
If we don't, it's going to keep on burying us. Now you've got your Promise Keepers Bible on the table. Yeah, I, I only brought this in case anybody would be interested, but, you know, that's a marked-up Bible on the inside. It is. I mean, I, this is a man who reads his Bible. Thirty. Right this is not. I've read several versions, and this is only one I read for about six years. But I've read others for thirty-six years, and I go through and I mark. I have color codes for things that have to do with warnings. Those are in red. Uh, blessings in green. Yellow. I want to spotlight things and greens. Greens uh, that are that I say blessings and. And other ways, and then I write in the margins things that I've just learned and I refer back to other scriptures. So I do this day by day. This is the one-year Bible divided into 365 portions. So, of course, I haven't read, as we're doing this, I haven't read today's portion, but it's opened right now to March 16th when we're talk, talk, talking now. But I read 15th yesterday and so on, so so often the scriptures that I'm reading have to do with what I'm doing today, like this was yesterday, with their words, the godless, this is Proverbs 11, the godless destroy their friends, but knowledge will rescue the righteous. The whole city celebrates when the godly succeed, they shout for joy when the wicked die. Upright citizens are good for a city and make it prosper. But the talk of the wicked tears it apart. That could be right now the underscoring for pictures of our culture right now. Right now. The talk of the wicked tears it apart. We hear nothing but on television talk of the wicked and our society is being torn apart. Knowledge will rescue the righteous. Where's the most knowledge? In this Bible, the Bible says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? If they take away the Declaration of Independence and the, and the Constitution, which and there are wholesale assaults on it, you take the Bible out of school. You won't let school kids pray uh, at the beginning of a school day. In come the guns, the drugs, the violence, the sex to replace what would be there if the kids were allowed to have a moment of prayer at the beginning of the school day. They're afraid two or three atheists will be offended. So they take it away from, from the righteous so they won't offend. Down in Mississippi, I, I kept, you know, I write columns for WorldNet Daily, Newsmax, books, trying to say to you, you atheists who object to all the other kids in school saying a prayer, because you'll be embarrassed. Your kids, why don't you teach your kids to be proud of their atheism? Right, right. We're Christians are proud of our kids. They want to express their faith in God at the beginning of a school day. And and you you don't want your kids to be embarrassed because they don't they don't have to pray. But don't make the other kids, the 95% that want to pray, don't stop them because you don't like it, because your kids, what you've taught them. They'll be embarrassed. You know, they've gotten their way. And uh, I think back, I graduated high school in 1985 in Oregon. And most of the trucks, I mean, the kids all drove trucks. All of them had guns in yeah. the car. Yeah. Guys would walk down the hallway with big old hunting knives on, yeah. especially during deer and elk season. Yeah. I mean, that was just normal to have. Yeah. So now that we've got, gotten their way, you look at the other way. We've got cops in schools. We've got yeah. metal detectors. Does anybody, you wonder, it, it says that, you know, the one who says in his heart there is no God is a fool. Yeah. They can't seem to learn 
the, what we're seeing today is the consequences of the, the things that they put into place. Boy, it was sure a lot easier 35 years ago when kids had what guns What were schools school, like when they, they could safe. begin the school day? Not just in a moment of prayer, even a silent prayer or somebody voicing a prayer, but they also used to sing one of the patriotic songs like God Bless America or This Is My Country or even the, the national anthem, Oh Say Can You See, there would be a song of praise for the country at the beginning of a school day. When I learned that this was not happening anymore, I'm the only entertainer I know of who actually recorded all of America's great patriotic songs, including the national Is anthem. Right? And it's called American Glory. And all of these songs are recorded because kids today, even adults, they never hear them. They don't, can they find those on YouTube or Spotify or on the patboon.com website, of Pat course. Patboon.com. And, and, and I am, I've, I've begun something because I have recorded more songs, separate songs than any artist in history. I've been just <laughs> a recording fool, I guess. But Frank Sinatra recorded some 1,500 songs. And all of them are classics. I consider them all classics. Many do. Bing Crosby, my idol, <clears throat> became a role model anyway, recorded some 2,000 songs over a longer wow. period of time. I have recorded over 2,300 songs because wow. I recorded in all genres, jazz, country, rock and roll, movie themes, gospel, of course. I'm in the Gospel Music Hall of Fame. And uh, outright jazz, even two a cappella albums. I'm from a church background where we always sang church songs a cappella. I've done two a cappella albums. And if you don't sing well with no <laughs> yeah. music and you're singing with a, a good a cappella voices, you better sing well, which I do in these two a cappella albums. But I've been worried that these 2,300 songs were just forgotten. Well, I've gotten hip to uh, Spotify. And they've gotten hip to me. And so they're putting more and more of my songs with the with the idea. They're open to the idea. They will eventually archive all 2,300 of my recordings, all of all time, of all types uh, on Spotify so that at least those who are interested can go back, hear any of the gold record songs that I did. I had 13 million sellers and six number ones and 40, 50 million records sold. But most of those songs are not known to anybody except those who bought the albums. And so there are millions and millions of people that like a few of my songs, but don't know about the thousands of others that I did that I paid just as much attention to and I care as much about as the ones that happened to well, be. Well, you know, hits. after this, I'll be checking out a bunch of your songs so Spotify, that I didn't even know. Yeah, I mean, country songs, gospel. So now I've created something called Pat Boone's Kaleidoscope, which is beginning to air uh, on Spotify right now. And, uh, and then, because you can go and hear that anytime from nothing, I guess. I mean, you must pay a few cents for a month or something to hear anything you want as often as you want. And so I'm glad that it's all out there. I don't make any money for it from it to speak of, but Kaleidoscope is, is one hour programs in which you never know what's coming next. You may hear mm. Tutti Frutti by little, I mean, my record of Tutti Frutti, you may hear uh, He'll Have to Go, George Jones country song. Mm -hmm. After that comes Ave Maria. But these or, are all you singing. Them. All me singing the same voice but in all these different genres of music, all of it, most of it having been 
responsible for my appearing in the charts of those genres of music because I was accepted. I mean, the, the heavy metal album was on country charts. It was on jazz charts. It was on, right? on hard rock charts, of course. Yeah, it was, it, it was spectacular. But then some of the other things I've done have crossed over into separate genres because I was combining, in some cases, the genre of music and it would be playable in jazz form on jazz stations. I've done some things and then really R&B things that were that I was on the R&B charts in the early days as an R&B singer, not a pop singer, because I was doing R&B songs. So my record, like of Ain't That a Shame, Fats Domino's had already been number one on the R&B chart. My record was number one pop, but number nine on the R&B chart. Wow. And they even put Love Letters in the Sand, which was definitely not R&B, but it also made the R&B charts because at that point I was considered an R&B singer. Now, you know, a lot of people tuned into this because mm -hmm. they're, they're, you know, they're thinking, man, what is Pat Boone doing now? And so in this last 10 minutes or so, you're still really busy. In fact, you're in the yep. middle of making a movie right now. Yep, I sure tell, am. Tell us about the movie. In fact, I've done three faith-based films just recently, which one of them was God's Not Dead 2. I was not in God's Not Dead 1, which was a huge hit. The second, God's Not Dead 2, was also a, a major hit, not as big as the first one. But I play a granddaddy in the film to uh, Melissa Hart, and uh, I'm on a walker. And uh, I'm encouraging her because she's taken a stand in, as a school teacher and uh, is now being sued for having said, yes, Jesus did quote, or that is Martin Luther King did quote Jesus. She's in a Martin Luther King high school in, in Arkansas. But she said yes in answer to a question. Yes, uh, Martin Luther King did quote Jesus. Well, the atheist parents now take her to court because they they don't want the name Jesus mentioned in court. And I'm teaching her kids in school. Uh, he, she's teaching her kids. And I'm her granddad in the film. And the film did very well. And at the end, the director, when I hear on the radio that she's been acquitted and is not going to lose her job and, and not lose the case, he, he says, the director, can you can you do a little dance? I said, I'm on a walker. What kind of a dance can I do? But I, I, I jumped up and down on the walker, and then, I, and then I said, God, you're good. That was not in the script. And they used that picture of me pointing up, promoting the film, uh, God's Not Dead 2. But I did a film called Boonville Redemption. I saw that picture. I didn't know that was you. Yeah, that was me. And then, uh, and I've also appeared... Uh, and I'm, I've done a, doing a film with Ronald Reagan uh, about on Ronald Reagan, and I play a minister in that film. And it's a big budget film; it's not out yet, but it'll come out, I guess, mid year. And it's going to treat him responsibly. Who and plays well. Reagan in that? Dennis Quaid plays, oh, wow. and he does a great job. I went to Arkansas even during COVID, and I had to be tested to go there, and I, I went and did my part as a minister who prayed for Ronald Reagan when he was governor and prophesied that he would dwell at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, which at that time seemed crazy, but it was true. And I, that's a scene in the film. I play the minister who did prophesy over him, saying to Ronald Reagan, if you walk uprightly, speaking for the Lord, if you walk uprightly before me, you will dwell at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue.
I was friends with Don Muma, his pastor at yeah, Bel Air Presbyterian Bel-Air Pres. for all those years. And I referred Robert Goulet to go to that church because really? he needed, he he wanted to really get serious, but he and his wife at that time, serious about the Christianity. I said, well, you'll like Don Muma because he's a big football he player. He played the Rose Bowl. And, uh, and so, yeah. and, and, and really, Robert Goulet became a solid believer. Is However, right? <laughs> I took him to church with me on Christmas Eve once, and uh, he went to a couple parties before the Christmas Eve <laughs> service, and he was still a drinker. And uh, he was on the back row, and uh, he couldn't drive any. They'd taken his license away, and he had a 400-pound guy named Big Bob that had to drive him around. But but he had asked me if I would take him to a Christmas Eve service, and I said, of course. But I didn't know when he got there he would be sort of under the influence and so he's hearing the people saying and pray and praise the Lord and amen. And and you hear him saying, in, uh, uh, it came upon a midnight. <laughs> you can hear his big voice everywhere. <laughs> and he's in the back row saying, they all know he's there. Now, Jack Hayford, the preacher, so, starts preaching and, and people say, amen, brother, amen, hallelujah. And he says, you know, he came as the babe of Bethlehem, but then he grew and he became the Messiah, the Savior, that people started saying amen, and you hear Bob say, damn right! <laughs> I mean, that was his version of amen. <laughs> and he had a voice to pull out. Oh, off. yeah, everybody in the place heard it. So tell us about the golf movie you're making for the Golf Channel. Well, yes, this, I'm playing a golfer, retired pro. I'm patterning him after Gene Saracen or a guy, a golfer who is still alive. And I know well, Gary Wyron, who helped write the rules of golf. And he wears knickers when he plays golf. Even now, so did Saracen. So I'm going to be wearing knickers made by the same guy that made uh, uh, Payne Stewart's knickers. Because my character would still be wearing knickers on a golf course. And he is has become a mentor to young golfers who are having trouble with their golf because of problems in their lives. And Davis Love, who's going to be in the film, and uh, and other well-known golfers are going to be in it. We're going to film it outside Atlanta in in April and um, in May. And I'm playing this, this mentor who takes on golfers who are having trouble with their games because of personal things in their lives. And, uh, and he shows them how if they get their personal lives, their marriages and their relationship with their kids and straightened out in their lives, that their golf will benefit. And I do help this one guy in particular, and this the film is called The Mulligan, which is a book that's been very popular with golfers. And it's a do-over. It's a, it's a, uh, a second chance. So if you're on the golf course and you hit a bad drive, you turn to your partner and you say, can I have a mulligan? And if they're willing, you get a chance to do what you meant to do the first time. And if you miss a putt. or I know some marriages are like that. Yes, lives are like (laughs) that. They've messed up terribly, but God gives us a chance. Mm. He gives us a mulligan. He gives us a chance to start over. And that's really the theme of this film. And it's produced by Christians for secular distribution. But the book was a secular success. And it's being funded and will be aired perpetually on the golf channel. That's so great. So I'm getting to play a role that I really love. When do you think it'll come out? So you're filming it in, in April, April, which will be beautiful in, and in May, Georgia. And I suppose it'll be fall. It'd be the, be it'd be the fourth quarter. But you know, 
the fourth quarter will be the release of that film. It'll also be the release of my last book called If. But the film will come out then. And of course, I was also in a cowboy film. It was for kids. Uh, it's a cowgirl story, actually. And I play a retired Marine chaplain. Uh, and, it, and it's a strong gospel message in that film. And then a film I really paid most of the money to produce. It was called Boonville Redemption, but it's not about me. It's about a little town in uh, Northern California. And it, has to, it hasn't been released yet. I'm hoping it's going to get its distribution because it's a really good film. And I play the town doctor in that film. So you are still busy as can be. Oh, I am. I'm, I'm being offered parts in films and part, but most of the things I can't do or don't want to do. But certain things, if I think I can do them, and of course, the, the word is out in Hollywood amongst the casting directors. If you if you need somebody to play an 80-something-year-old who can still remember his lines, <laughs> call Pat Boone. He can do it. So I'm accepting that role in my life. But, but I'm reading this Bible every day, and I'm always learning. And, you know, I that's why I'm so committed to, to Promise Keepers, because... I've been involved with Promise Keepers for so many years since uh, Coach McCartney began it. And I'm so thrilled that you have taken over. I don't know if you want to talk about that right now, but yeah, uh, let's, uh, am I jumping the gun? We've got a couple minutes. Let's just talk about the fact that we'll be at Dallas Cowboys Stadium on July 16th and 17th. We are sold out to the COVID minimums that we have, but we think the governor is going to release oh, more please, seats please, please. so that we'll be able to sell more tickets. But I would say to everybody, go to promisekeepersevent.com to buy tickets. Early Bird is still there. We're still selling tickets, assuming that we'll, they'll open up the capacity. Oh, please. Let's pray for that, boy. Let's pray because it is the quintessence of what we need. We need the church praying. I've already been involved with events like the return, which was in uh, November of this last year. And and uh, Rabbi Jonathan Kahn and mm -hmm. and Franklin Graham and so many people, Kevin Sorbo, were all part, part of that. And we were for two days calling the nation to pray uh, previous to the election for God's will to be done. Because he said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. Well, a lot of us did that and, and to the tune of several hundred thousand, but we're talking about a nation of 300 million people. The polls show that, that uh, maybe 150 million of us don't go to church or synagogue or any worship place. They say they may or may not pray ever. They, they don't know who God is or if there is a God. I mean, this is over half, at least half our population. And even more who may go to churches on Easter and Christmas, but are not necessarily many of the, of the Christians themselves, not living the lives and not paying attention to, to the downslide of the immorality in the country. Just thinking it'll all turn out okay. Well, it will not turn out okay unless we seek God. And God's still willing to give us a mulligan in America. <laughs> He's still willing for us to have a do-over. But it's going to require. Yeah. He'll be willing until he's not willing, right? Yes. So let's and, take until we show that we're not willing either. Mm -hmm. We have to let him know on our faces, on our knees. Boy. And Amen. men, particularly men, are created in God's image. 
and 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 Solomon, the man who had all of everything, when it summed up, and I said this to Hugh Hefner's face on the Dinah Shore show, I said, you remind me, Hugh, of a man in the Bible. He said, really? I said, yeah, Solomon. He had three, 300 wives and 700 concubines, mistresses. And he dropped his pipe. He said, he must have been tired. I said, he was very tired. He said, vanity, vanity, everything's vanity. Nothing matters except the summation. And the reason God let him have all that was so he could tell us what it's like. We're not even you are not ever going to have everything Solomon had. And at the end, he summed it all up and saying the whole duty of man or a man is to fear God, keep his commandments. The whole reason oh, we live. Witness to Hugh Hefner. The, and, I, and all he did, we went away. Dinah Shore had me repeat it. What was that again? I said, the whole duty of man, the whole reason for his existence is to fear God and keep his commandments. If we don't do that, there was no reason for us to be alive. Amen. And 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 we went away to a commercial and Hugh was still holding his pipe. Boy, he must have been tired. That's all he could think about was 300 wives and 700 mistresses. Now he's met the Jesus who he denied and tried to explain his playboy philosophy to Jesus. I would not have wanted to be in his place. Although I shared with him personally, and I've done it on TV shows wherever I get a chance. I try to let people know what I know is real and true. And I've, I've written books and I've sung songs and I've talked to the presidents themselves. I've talked to Elvis. I've talked to 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 uh, the guy that lived next door to me, Ozzy, <laughs> Ozzy Osbourne. Uh, I my mind is so full of things I want to say and things I want to do. Well, we're going to have you. Out of time. We're going to have you as a special guest at the Promise Keepers event, which we talked about. You're going to stay with us at the hotel with I'm all the speakers be, and the board. Can I add one note? Yeah, I told Coach McCartney I was at Memphis at, at a major event just jammed to the rafters and a big outdoor thing. And I was with my dad, who, as I say, lived to be 94. He was about 90 then. And my brother, who my age, and his son, and my grandson. And so I had my, my father and my grandson. It was four generations represented in one family of promise keepers. And we went up in the skybox to, to be with the coach. And he said, you know, I can't remember there being four men in one family of, of promise keepers in, in one of our meetings, four generations of promise keepers. But we were and are, and my brother, a year younger than me, he and his family, his son uh, is on the Golf Channel, he, Grant Boone, but he, he could be on CBS, but CBS wanted him, but he said, look, I've got a wife and three kids, and they're my main responsibility. I can't travel anymore. They said, we'll get somebody else. So they did. He would be on CBS right now. Instead, he's on the Golf Channel, LPGA. He doesn't have to travel as much so he can take care of his wife and his kids because he knows that's his main responsibility. And that's what we're going to answer to God for, not how much money we made or how famous we may have been or weren't, or whatever else we did. He's going to say, did you take care of your wife? Did you take care of your children? Did you tell them about me? <laughs> did you set an example for them? And that's what we're going to answer for on the day of judgment. Mm -hmm. 
And we've got to know that. We've got to re recognize. That's be, why I read this every day. It must be pretty awesome to be 87 years old and to be able to look back on a life well lived. Um, your, your dear wife, uh, Shirley, who went to be with the Lord. She's in heaven right now praying for us, interceding for us. I'm sure she, I, I see her nudging the Lord said, but don't forget about Pat. He's going through this. He's got a book coming out. He's got, uh, he's trying to get this song, Yehoshua. The, the oldest rabbi in Israel, 105 years old, came out of his studio two years ago, three years ago, told his disciples, he was still teaching his disciples, Rabbi Yitzhak Kaduri. The rab, the Messiah has appeared to me, told me his name. And I've written it down and I've sealed it. Don't want it open till a year after my passing which is going to be soon. Ariel Sharon was still in his coma. He'll pass, then I'll pass. And then you open this envelope and you can, you'll know the name of the Messiah. I told this to Prime Minister Netanyahu two years ago now in his office. And he knew Rabbi Kaduri. I said, are you familiar with the controversy since his death? He revealed the name of the Messiah in his own handwriting in Hebrew. Netanyahu said, which is, that deep voice of his, Yehoshua, Jehovah is salvation. Yeshua. And I heard Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, say, Jesus. And I forgot to take him a copy of the book, The Rabbi Who Found Messiah. And I told the publisher the next day I forgot to take him. He said, don't worry. The publisher just called me. Netanyahu ordered 30 copies of the mm, book. Wow. They know that the name of the Messiah is Yeshua in Hebrew, salvation. But the full name, as revealed to the rabbi, is Yehoshua, which is Jehovah is salvation. And in the margin of most Bibles, as it says, when the angel said to Mary, he'll be conceived of the Holy Spirit, and his name is to be Yeshua in Hebrew, salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. His name is salvation in Hebrew, and and yet we haven't known that. We say Jesus because it was translated from Aramaic to Greek and then into English. And, and so we don't know, most of us, that his name, it should have been, the if it were translated properly, it would say to Mary, because she was speaking Hebrew, not English, you'll conceive a child, his name will be salvation, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. So I've written a song. Yehoshua, and I'm trying to get it recorded with Michael Omardian so Christians and Jews together can sing that song. I mean, there's a lot on my plate. I'm trying to get a lot done. Well, would you pray us out and uh, just bless the people who are listening to this? <laughs> sure. Oh, Father, our Father, the very fact that we can speak to the creator of the universe of all there is and call you our Father, even Abba, Daddy. Paul says we, we make supplication and call you Daddy, Abba, Abba, Father. Father, we do. We know you care about us. You care about the country. You, you care so much that you gave your own life and the body of your Son for us. It is your desire that not any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, to know you, to turn to you so that you can save us. You want us to live in eternity with you, but only if we want to. So, Lord, birth in us the desire and the awareness that it's up to us to make the choice. We want to live in heaven with you. Of course we do. If there's a God and a heaven, and we know there is. 
we want to live with you, but we need to know how we get there. What is the way? You show us the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So, Lord, help us to know it. Help us to know it. Help us to know it in every possible way. We commit ourselves to you. We are your children. We want to be your sons and daughters. In your image, help us to let people know how we can get to spend eternity with you. We pray it in the name of our Savior, Yeshua, Jehovah is salvation, the one we call and know as Jesus. Amen. On a day like today Thanks for listening to On the Edge Podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting, and I want to tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization founded by Coach Bill McCartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Promise Keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership. To learn more and get involved in the mission of Promise Keepers, visit promisekeepers.org. Follow on social media or download the Promise Keepers app on Apple Store or Google Play by searching Promise Keepers. Through the Promise Keepers app, you'll receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, and other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On the Edge with Ken Harrison. Over love.